Hey, welcome to Tape to Tape, powered by the new Ram 1500 Sport, built exclusively for Canadians. I'm Ryan Dixon. I'm a writer at Sportsnet.ca. Coming up on this episode, we will speak with Eric Engels. He covers the Canadians for Sportsnet, and we're going to talk about some of the things Eric's been writing about and some of the Canadians players he has spoken to during this hiatus. Before that, though, of course, I'm pleased to be joined by my awesome co-host, Rory Boylan. Rory, how you doing? Uh, you know, we're on week, whatever week we're on. Uh, I think it's five. I think it's five, five depending how you five. count. Still holding out hope that we're going to return and have uh, at least some Stanley Cup playoffs. And you hear Gary Bettman and everything he says seems to indicate that he's still optimistic. And until we get that drop dead date, we can hold on to that. And in the yeah. meantime, just kind of trying to keep entertained and active, going out for walks where we can and everything like that. How about yourself? Yeah, about the same. Uh, certainly crushing my share of television, at least once the care child taking part of the day is over. This has definitely been an exercise in the distinct difference between the experience of people who do and do not have kids. Because you hear the people who do not talk about all this time they have to kill. And I'm kind of looking around <laughs> at my wife being like, does it feel like we have any less to do? Because oh. it really doesn't to me. However... Usually by 8 o'clock, it's time to uh, stick a fork in some dinner and fire something up on the tube. And if anyone's interested, I got to say, we just crushed through a program called 000 on Amazon Prime. Definitely not one to watch with the kiddos around or even if you have a weak stomach. We are talking uh, some pretty high-level drug cartel stuff, but it's a page turner, man. We tore through that. I think it was eight episodes, and it, we were good for two a night. So that was definitely mm. one that held our attention. And I got to say, I watched the uh, Dave Chappelle special where he receives the Mark Twain Award for Humor. And so it's basically, you know, it's clips of the night. Of course, all his friends are there on stage paying tribute to him and they jump around to some old footage, you know, basically telling the story of Chappelle. My God, if anyone deserves an award for humor, it is that man. So, yeah, I tore through that one last night. Nice. Two nights ago, I guess this one is from either 2016 or 2017 on Netflix. Operation Odessa. Okay. Speaking of drug cartels, it's about these uh, three guys, very different backgrounds, all come from very different places that form a relationship. And basically the story is how these guys were working with Colombian drug cartel to try and buy a Russian submarine kind of around the time the Soviet Union was crumbling. And so oh, okay. everything was kind of for sale and it was like the Wild West and everything like yeah. that. And the Russian mafia gets involved in all of this stuff and it's just a wild tale, one episode documentary on it. Excellent watching, I thought. All right, perfect. I love a good doc, so I will file that one away. All right, so Dave Chappelle got his award for humor. Rory, we handed out some awards of a different nature. Uh, usually, this would have been pretty close just a couple weeks ago, the time where writers would have cast the votes for the awards they vote on. Of course, there also you have the GMs and the broadcasters voting on different awards, but you asked our staff to basically just vote on them all, and they were compiled, and you can see everyone's ballot at sportsnet.ca but i just want to pull out a couple of the the ones where there were a few different names floated for the mvp for the norris trophy uh we were also picking coach of the year and gm of the year so we'll start at the top 
Leon Dreisaitl got the most votes among our, I believe it was 14, who cast a vote. But you and I were both McKinnon guys. What was your rationale? Oh, boy. I mean, it was really tough. It was, For me, it's one, two, right? It's those yeah. guys. Um, I think I even wrote Dreisaitl and deleted it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I might have actually done the same. But so the way it ended up, there were 14 people who voted. And the way the tally ended up in the group was nine for Dreisaitl, four for McKinnon, and one for Artemi Panarin. And I was surprised that one wasn't a little bit more close um, as some of these other ones were. But for me, it just came down to, I think, just McKinnon, A, is the better player between the two, and B, he his team dealt with so many more injuries yeah. than the Edmonton Oilers did. And I think where Dreisaitl deserves credit, for sure, is that when Connor McDavid did miss a few games, Dreisaitl was unstoppable and, and unbelievable. And that's where I think kind of took out of the conversation well he can't win this award as long as Connor McDavid is on this team that is irrelevant as far as this year goes because he showed that he can do this without McDavid I just think that McKinnon was so much more of a single individual driving force for that team both when everybody was healthy and when everybody was hurt to keep Colorado chugging pushing St. Louis for that top spot in the central division I mean, just watch the guy. He can take over games like anything. And he's always my closest comparable of in the NBA, you have one player that can kind of take a team to a certain level. McKinnon, to me, is the closest NHL example of that. A single player who, no matter what, can kind of take a team to a certain level. And I think he deserved some credit for that for the season that he had. It just continues to baffle me that after winning the Calder Trophy, his year two, three, and four seasons were quite underwhelming, right? He looked like, like a he, bust. He looked like he might be a crazy. Like yeah. he topped out in those three seasons at 53 points. That was 16-17, played the full season, 16 goals. He's 21 years old, four years into the league, and you're like, yeah, okay, I guess this guy just isn't anything special. And then, boom, <laughs> the last three seasons, he is just an absolute unstoppable force of nature. And... You know, I go through this every year when I actually do the ballot. You know, you fill out a ballot with five names and you end up having, you know, often another five that were in serious consideration. I mean, at least to get on the ballot. And you go in circles. Sometimes, honestly, close your ears, analytics people. It's a gut thing. And in your heart of hearts, like, is Leon Dreisaitl more important to the Edmonton Oilers than Nathan McKinnon is to the Colorado Avalanche? I just couldn't do it, you know? Right. Like, yep. I just feel like he is so absolutely vital to that team and where that team... I mean, they have some great players, and it's been an amazing job. We'll get to that later, uh, perhaps by Joe Sackick. But without McKinnon, you pull on that thread, the whole thing comes apart pretty quick. I think you nailed something on the head there about it being, uh, it in certain instances, coming down to a gut. Like, you can pour over the stats, you can make all those kind of arguments, and and sometimes it can help you make a, a, a more informed decision. But times like these, between Dreisaitl and McKinnon, I mean, it really is just, it's almost 50-50 between the two. And when it gets down to that, you can only nitpick the stats so much when everything is so similar until you got to step away and say, look, like, who do I think personally? It is my vote. It's not the stats vote. <laughs> yeah. Who do I think breaks this tie? Who who am I going with? I think that's a great point. Uh, so I had John Carlson for the Norris. You had Roman Yossi. I, I don't say I was surprised because honestly, 
I could have gone Yossi and I probably am more of a Yossi fan overall. But at the end of the day, I just thought Carlson and this was kind of the dry sidle case in my mind. He was just having one of those seasons you can't not recognize. And Carlson's just been so amazing. I mean, obviously at one point he was kind of on pace for a hundred points that somewhat predictably did fall off. But I mean, he he's got. Yossi in even strength goals he's got him in even strength points he plays a ton uh, was a bit of a coin flip but this was one where I just looked at the good old counting stats the points and said I can't bypass this guy see I want to double check that because I was looking at natural stat trick before this and maybe it's you know you're factoring in four on four and three on three and all that stuff but the five on five points yossi did have carlson by two okay it may have that. been that so then. it's close so there, okay. yeah that's only five on five so there's other even strength measures that can weigh into that but that's how close it is right you peel out the power play stuff and they're very close to level on on that front you know for me this did come down to trying to get into the numbers to see to to try and inform myself a little bit more it's always difficult with the Norris because it's not like some other awards it's for defensemen in general like how do you value a defenseman uh, how do you value a defensive defenseman versus an offensive guy it's easier to see the offensive guy right and uh, yeah, no doubt so so first of all the final vote tallies on this were eight for Carlson and six for Yossi so very very close um, Yossi to me like he had more five on five shots on goal um, his time on ice was higher than Carlson. His shots for and goals for percentage at five on five were much better than John Carlson's was. He was one of the best in the league um, at that. It just seemed to me that, and he's on a much worse team, right? Like he is. As Drew Doughty pointed out. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Drew Doughty pointed that out 100%. And I think it's very easy to say that Yossi was the MVP of the Nashville Predators this season. Harder to say that for Carlson with Ovechkin there doing what he's doing, but definitely in the running. For me, it was just, you know, Yossi's on the worst team and is relied on more on both sides of the ice than Carlson is for the Washington Capitals. And, you know, again, this is a toss-up. Whoever you're not picking, <laughs> you're picking him for number two on yeah. this. It's, it's a two-horse race. So it just came up to me where this is one of them for me, where when I looked at the numbers, it just felt to me like Yossi's season was more worthy of, of some accolades. Not that Carlson's isn't. I mean, he's got a 10-point lead on Yossi in, in the overall point race. So that's huge in of itself, and you definitely can't overlook that. I, I do think that... Oftentimes now, you know, people look at the numbers or look at just the counting stats. How many points does a guy have? And say, well, that guy's just an offensive defenseman. He's a liability on defense and all that stuff. And there's more to it. Carlson isn't that. I really think that this is a close race. Personally, I just thought the numbers swayed me more towards Yossi. I was somewhat shocked to realize Yossi's never been a finalist for the Norris. He's never finished higher then fifth um whenever i assume we will get official norris trophy voting at some point no matter what happens and he's certainly going to uh at least crack the top three if not win it but yeah sometimes the word rover really isn't used in a complimentary right. sense for a defense but i think yeah. whenever people call yossi a rover um it's understood that it is the highest compliment that he's all over the place in a good way as i like to say and yeah, he definitely going to get his due at some point. He's also going to get his big bag of money starting uh, next year, oh, yeah. having inked that extension and well-deserved. But as you said, you know, these 
it was one guy by a nose and whoever you didn't have one, you were going to have two. Tell us a little bit about how the Jack Adams voting shook out. I had Bruce Cassidy for the Bruins, and I'll tell you right now, sometimes you take different things into account when voting, and sometimes I do think it's just about is it time to acknowledge this person, you know? And when yes. you look at what he's done since taking over for Claude Julian, I mean, you can make cases for guys like John Tortorella. I think it was Bukoskis. Kyle Bukoskis may have voted for Tortorella. I thought about that, the way he kept that team. I mean, that's kind of the old traditional zone right there for the coach of the years, the guy who takes the team no one thought would be around the playoffs, into the playoffs. The Bruins were first overall. They've been basically great from the drop of the puck. I just felt it was time to acknowledge what he has done for that team and how good they've been since he took over. I am afraid of in these votes is giving it to a guy who really benefited from goalies just playing really well. And Mm -hmm. I think Tortorella falls closer to that category than some of the other guys I was considering on this. Columbus had the fifth best save percentage at five on five in the league this year. Now you might say, because I also voted for Bruce Cassidy, you might say, well, Boston has the best save percentage at five on five this year. And yes, that's true, but they're also top three in power play and penalty kill. They have dealt with a couple of injuries. He's had to move some some guys up around the lineup and everything like that. And I think at some point, you shouldn't be detracted from this award just because you're coaching a good team. Too often we get into this cycle, I guess, where guys get voted because their goalie played well, and then with two years, three years later, they're out of yeah. a job because their team was just not that good in the first place. And so Cassidy, again, like... They've just always been good. They were the best team in the NHL when the season hit pause. They were good at everything. They didn't have a weakness. They were this year's Tampa Bay Lightning, basically, just running rough shot on the league, more or less from beginning to the end here. So, I, you know, and based on what came before, I just think he deserved some credit for that. And after that, I'll just read out some of the final tallies. Where so you had Bruce Cassidy was number one. He had five of the 14 votes. And then it kind of spread out. You had Sullivan with three, Vignon with two. And I was surprised that Lenny Vignon didn't get a, a bit more, actually, with what mm. uh, he's accomplished there in Philadelphia. And then four coaches had one vote each. John Tortorella, Jared Bednar, Paul Maurice, and Travis Green. And my takeaway from this, Ryan, was I was shocked because this guy was my number two pick. I was shocked. Uh, Dave Tippett did not get any votes here whatsoever because, I mean, look at Edmonton. <laughs> they're in the playoffs and they look yeah. like a much better and different team this year. And, you know, there have been times when their goalies have been good and that's been one of the better stories for them, I think, this year. But again, five on five, they're 25th in the league in save percentage. So they're not like running away because of the goalies this year. Tippett has done a lot to kind of bring along... Caleb Jones, who has been a boon to that defense, as, as well as Ethan Bear, putting those guys in positions where they can succeed. You know, we started James Neal up in the top six, and he was scoring all those goals at the start of the year, and then he kind of dried up, and he moved him down to the third line, to the fourth line. After the Andreas Athenath CU trade deadline move, he was tried up top and then moved down the lineup very quickly. Didn't see too much of him. You know, I think the coach deserves some credit here for making this team better defensively. They just look like a better structured team right now than they did in the past. And if I'm going to tie this into our votes for GM of the year, which Joe Sackick absolutely run away with, but the runner up for GM of the year was 
Ken Holland. And I was surprised at the two of those things because both of those guys, Ken Holland and Dave Tippett, first year with the Edmonton Oilers, Ken Holland brought in James Neal. He made the trade deadline moves. He signed Mike Smith and all that stuff. So he did have an impact on this year's roster. But when both of those guys, when both of those positions are only in place in an organization for one year, how is the coach not more deserving of the accolades than the GM, who I think is more, you know, it's got to be a body of work. What have you done to build your team? And he's done some things, but I don't think enough. I think, to me, the coach is the bigger reason why this year's team has achieved to the level that it has. Are we giving Ken Holland credit for hiring Dave Tippett? And that's, you know, and maybe that's what some people (laughs) line it on. And that's absolutely fair, right? That is on Ken Holland's resume. I just think for him to be considered for GM of the year, you got to be in place for more than a year, right? You got to be having some more impact. Maybe, maybe you look at it too and say, well, he called up Kyler Yamamoto and Yamamoto was absolutely stellar. But again, I think the coach deserves credit more so than the GM in year one for putting the guys where they need to go to succeed. How many coaches out there would not really want to use Kyler Yamamoto and bury him at first? And I think he started down low and it didn't take long for Tippett to move him up. But I think Tippett is just, he's had to move a lot of things around this year and he's done it spectacularly. So check out the full list of awards as voted on by us, people who work at Sportsnet. You can find that at sportsnet.ca. Before we bring in Eric Engels to talk about the Canadians, Rory and I just want to send all the heartfelt sympathy in the world to the family of Colby Cave. Just heartbreaking to see a person with so much life in front of them have that snatched away. So again, just the, the warmest thoughts and deepest sympathies to the family of Colby Cave. Also, on a more personal note, I was very sad to hear the passing of Pat Stapleton, the longtime Blackhawks defenseman and central figure on uh, the defense of Team Canada in 1972. I grew up around Strathroy in the late 1990s where Pat lived. He was running the Junior B team there uh, in the late 90s. He called my house one Saturday morning out of the clear blue sky. Uh, He'd seen that I was writing a bit for the local paper as part of a high school co-op program and he asked if I wanted to cover the Rockets for the paper and write some stuff for their program. So that was essentially my first sports writing gig. It started me down the path. He invited me out for breakfast with him and his wife to talk about covering the team. And uh, let's just say you could not overstate how mind-blowing it was for 17-year-old me to be eating breakfast with a member of Team Canada 1972. So rest in peace, Whitey. You were a true original. Okay, stick around. Eric Engels, next up on Tape to Tape. Welcome back to Tape to Tape. Joining us on the other line now from Montreal is Eric Engels. Eric, how are you hanging in? I'm joining you on some kind of line. (laughs) I'm hanging in pretty well. The wife and I have really made the best of what's a very difficult situation for everybody. And at the end of the day, health is really paramount and the only thing that matters right now. And I'm happy to say that we're both healthy and the members of our family, knock on wood, are healthy right now. So... That's the best we can uh, hope for. 
Well, great to hear. And I'm going to circle back to some of the things you've been doing and posting on Twitter to make the time pass better and more deliciously. But before that, Eric, you've been doing all kinds of awesome stuff at Sportsnet, talking to a, a lot of the Habs, Paul Byron, Ben Sherratt, uh, Brendan Gallagher, to name a few, uh, most recently Thomas Tatar. And it seems to me, I mean, these are the kind of conversations or at least pieces you don't often get to write this time of year where, you know, you're taking a 30,000 foot view of this player's time in Montreal and where they're at in their journey and how they fit in. Is there anything that stood out from talking to any of these guys over the course of your conversations here the past couple weeks? You know what, Ryan? Like, a lot of things stood out. I mean, the first thing is, and I understand, you know, I'm not sure how people feel about how the sausage gets made, so to speak, but what's been really interesting for me in this process is that I think fans are aware that, you know, the teams and the PA kind of told players to stay quiet at this time. And, you know, I'd always felt like I had built some pretty good relationships with the players. Um, But you never know for sure until all of a sudden you need to test those relationships. So, for one, I'm extremely thankful that, you know, that was somewhat confirmed over the last few weeks that I've been able to touch base with some guys and get them on record and get them talking about things like you mentioned, whether it was Ben Sherrod or Paul Byron or Brendan Gallagher or Nate Thompson or Dale Weiss and then the list goes on. You know, that was that was really a good feeling. And, it, you know, it speaks to, like, the intricacies of building relationships and reporting and being on the sidelines and having conversations and them getting to know about you and you getting to know about them. So that's that stuff right off the top of my head stood out for me um, in terms of just, you know, how those relationships have been built and, and how strong they are. And you know, based on that, we were able to get into some subject matter that, you know, ultimately, obviously, is is less important than what's going on in, in the world right now, but still important in the world of the Montreal Canadiens and where they've gone and where they're going moving forward. So, um, you know, Paul Byron talking about the maturity of the Montreal Canadiens at this stage and that the variance in age of the group and that you know, he believes that some of these these young kids learned a lot of valuable lessons this year about consistency in the gameplay. Speaking of Ben Sherratt, talking about his experience in Winnipeg and how they went from a team that had missed the playoffs and all of a sudden gone to the conference finals the next year. And really what it came down to was every single guy stepping up their game to a different degree. And even, you know, not just young players like be it Patrick Line who was coming up, but a guy like Blake Wheeler, who was 28, 29 years old and brought his game to a whole other level. So, you know, I think a big question I've been asking a number of players since the year began is why do you believe, what's one reason you believe that the Montreal Canadiens can win the Stanley Cup soon? And ultimately, every time that question was answered, you know, it came with some sort of external reason. It was, you know, anything can happen in this league. You know, if you make the playoffs, anything can happen. And look at what St. Louis just did. And I'm a big believer that the minute you can start looking internally for those reasons, um, then you're, you're probably getting closer and closer to being able to say that about yourself. And it was interesting listening to Paul Byron talk about how close this group is in terms of how tight-knit they are as a group and how much he feels that everyone believes it and wants it. And he feels that that will propel the group. So those are a couple of tidbits that I think came out of those conversations that I that I thought were fascinating. It probably is time to start looking forward on this team, even if the 
league resumes this season, I don't know how a team 10 points out of the playoffs would figure into anything outside of the regular season finishing in its entirety. So with that in mind, one of the guys you wrote on recently based off of, I believe it was the conference call that you had with Trevor Timmons, was Alex Romanov, who it looks like is going to be signing with the Habs before long. He'll be on this team next year. A lot of excitement around him, but just generally, what do you know of him as a player and what expectations reasonably can we have for him next year? Um, that's a great question. And I think, you know, Mark Bergevin himself has kind of tempered the expectation and said, we expect that he'll be able to come over and be a third pairing defenseman to start and inevitably within a three year to four year time frame, evolve into a top two, top four defenseman. I see that being a very healthy and normal and even conservative projection based on who the player is, you know, for one, He's a player that he's not explosive offensively. He's not that type of player. Although I do believe he has more offensive upside than people have suggested just based on looking at his numbers in Russia, you know, which are not that exciting. He still has the ability to drive play, make smart plays coming out of his end. I love what Ben Chirot said about the kid. You know, he said, I have limited viewing experience. I watched him play at the World Juniors like everybody else. What stood out to me that was that he wasn't doing things that most 19-year-olds do. He wasn't trying to force plays. He played the game like a professional. I think that speaks to the experience Romanov collected in Russia over the last two seasons. You know, his agent telling me that Mark Bergevin has a name for the kid and that they call him the destroyer. Classic. Um, in our business, we call that the money quote. But it's interesting that they view him that way. I, I think, you know, a lot of Canadians fans will remember a player like Alexi Amelin in terms of what his physical ability was. You know, Romanov has that edge and that, si- that style. But, you know, by all accounts, a much smarter decision maker on the ice. So you take that package and you put it next to a Jeff Petrie. um, I think you're going to generate some pretty interesting results. It helps to have an 18, 19 year old player that's gotten two years of pro under his belt, even at a level in Russia that is admittedly not what the NHL is. There's going to be an adjustment period. There's going to be an adjusting to being in Montreal period. You know, Trevor Timmons talking about the psychological attributes of this player how strong-willed he is, uh, how competitive he is, how much of a good teammate he is, which they learned at their own private European combine a couple seasons ago where he was encouraging all the other prospects. They just think the world of this kid, and everybody who I've spoken to seems to. So, you know, without overselling him, because we know he's not going to be a Kale McCarr, Quinn Hughes-type player who comes in and produces 40, 50 points, um, if he can be a stable, shut-down defenseman in your face style player who makes smart plays and is is capable on all 200 feet of the ice you know that's a big addition and then the fact that he's coming in expected to be ready to play is a big thing for a team that needs that type of player we'll talk more about the future and direction of this team but i want to circle back to more of the the here now in terms of guys on the squad making big contributions right now uh, or this season anyways uh thomas tatar the guy you spoke to most recently alluded to the fact that he has found a dream fit alongside brendan gallagher and philip Deneau. and anyone who's watched montreal the past couple years knows that's been by far their best line tatar's name came up around the trade deadline he has one year left next year before he can become a ufa there was you know 
chatter about Jeff Petrie. Those were the two guys where people, it was kind of the litmus test, like, hey, you know, where's this team going? Are they, do they want these guys here next year or would they be willing to part with them? What seems to get kind of glossed over in my mind is the fact Tatar's line mates, Brendan Gallagher and Deneau, both need new contracts in 2021 as well. They can both become UFAs. And I just feel like I haven't heard any chatter about this. I assume these are guys that the organization really covets and certainly hopes to keep around for a long time but what is your sense of the situation in terms of those two guys who become critical members of this team who are actually not that far away from being able to go to the open market so like it's a loaded question because there's so much information to digest but to put it simply your assumption that Gallagher and Deneau are core pieces moving forward is as safe as safe gets you know those are two players that the Canadians know they absolutely need to have moving forward. And, you know, when you deal with players that are up for unrestricted free agents, players that are on the wrong side of age 27, 28, you know that you're going to be signing those players to long-term deals and that inevitably down the line, you know, they may not pay off in those last couple years of the deal, but you accept that. You accept that with any free agent you're dealing with, whether they're your own or players you're chasing on the market. So it's always been a safe assumption that Gallagher and Deneau were going to get long-term deals. In Tatar's case, you know, it was a less safe assumption because he's going to be 30 when his deal expires. And the fact that he's had two career years in a row would lend anybody to believe that he priced himself out of Montreal, especially with the depth they have on left wing, you know, whether it's Paul Byron or Arturi Lakenin or Jonathan Drouin or Max Domi, if they decide to move him over with the depth they have up the middle, you know, that's where they end up having a real decision to make on Tatar, and that's why a lot of people were perplexed that not only did Bergevin not trade Tatar at the deadline with the team, you know, far out of the playoff picture and, and him pricing himself outside of Montreal, but he didn't even entertain offers on Tatar. He told people, whoever called, that he wasn't interested, and he explained after the deadline, albeit in a very confusing way, that Thomas Tatar's importance to the team as a leading scorer, even for one more year and even without assurances that he'll be able to stay beyond that one year was more worth it to him than potentially collecting some future assets for the player. Now what's become extremely interesting and what I tried to and had a very hard time putting into words but inevitably turned out well in in an article I wrote for Sportsnet.ca yesterday is that the dynamics of the pandemic for all unrestricted free agents moving forward is that you know, all unrestricted free agents have a certain level of uncertainty of what the market will bear for their services. But now, with the pandemic and hockey-related revenue and the salary cap, there's only going to be adverse effects in terms of when we resume hockey and how we resume hockey and whether fans will be in attendance. Hockey-related revenue is going to go down. The cap, if it remains at a fixed number for this season and next season as well with it. And that's bad news for all free agents. And so to bring it back to Tatar, if he was somewhat uncertain that, you know, in going to free agency a year from now of what the market would bear for his services and whether or not he'd be able to secure like a five-year deal worth X amount of money based on a couple of career years he just had in Montreal, that uncertainty is bigger now. And the Canadians have that advantage of signing him, you know, a year before we even get to him having to make those decisions. And they could potentially use that in addition to Tatar's understanding, his unique understanding of the fit he has with 
Gallagher and Deneau, and knowing those two guys are going to be around for a while longer and say, hey, this has been so successful for you. You know it has. You know the other side of the coin that you went to Vegas and it didn't fit well at all. And maybe we're willing to give you a long-term deal at a little more digestible of a cap hit versus what you would have gotten had you had everything been normal and you had gone out there and you had already priced yourself out of this market. Well, you know, maybe we'll give you a four-year deal and maybe we'll give you a cap hit that we can swallow on our own cap based on our future plans and guys that we need to sign. But at least you'll have assurances that you're playing with Gallagher and Deneau and you'll continue to be successful and you'll have a crack at another contract. We don't know. It's all hypothetical. But I think the chances of them keeping him beyond next year increased, not only with him recognizing what that fit is and how valuable it is to him, but also with the market dynamics that are coming into play with the pandemic. Yeah, and I was going to say kind of further to that, and I think you wrote about this, whatever the financial implications are when we come out of this um, and what they mean to the salary cap, whether it goes down a little bit or I think more likely stays even, it's not going to go up to what we initially thought it might. But the Canadians themselves are just a team that is in a better position to deal with any kind of fall or the cap staying level than any team, right? Like they've got a lot of wiggle room that a lot of that most of the league who's capped out doesn't have. Yeah, they do. And the, you know, the question ultimately becomes, can they weaponize it? You know, it's, it's been a couple of years that they've waited into the season with lots of cap space and haven't been able to really weaponize it. The one example we have of them doing so was uh, against, you know, a Winnipeg Jets team that was really up against the cap, needed some breathing room, had a contract for an, for a goaltender that they no longer had a need for in Steve Mason. Uh, and the Canadians said, we'll take that contract from you. We'll buy it out. It's no big deal for us. We have got plenty of room on the cap, but you're going to give us Joel Armia for free. And look what Joel Armia has done in the two years since he's been in Montreal. You know, he's, he's evolved into the player everybody thought he'd be when he was drafted in the first round by the Sabres all those year ago, years ago. And, Joel, you know, not to go off on a side tangent here, like, Armia is a really interesting player because he was drafted in Buffalo. We all knew, we saw what he did at the World Juniors. We all knew this guy was going to be a really good player. But because he had such upside, he was thrown into that Evander Kane deal and went over to a Winnipeg Jets team where if he had remained in Buffalo, you know, the ability for him to work his way up the lineup quickly probably would have been there. But in a Winnipeg team that was so deep on the right wing, whether it was, you know, Wheeler and, and Lyon coming and all these guys, you know, he just got stuck in a fourth line role in, in the beginning of his process, really. And, you know, in coming over to Montreal, finally got an opportunity that was probably would have been there two, three years earlier had he remained in Buffalo. So, that's that to me. That's one of the most winning trades that Mark Bergevin has made, just based on the cap space. And now, you know, you like you said, Rory, that situation is ripe once again for him to pull off that kind of move. And I think if you look at the Canadians in general and the way they're structured, they could use another player or two just like Yoel Armia, a guy who's like, you know, six two, has some weight to him, uh, you know, has the ability to really control the play down low. You know, they get a couple more players like that, whether it's a Josh Anderson, just to throw a name out there. I'm not saying they're going to get them or I've heard they are, but that's the type of player they need to target. And, and teams that are capped out, you know, they have ability to take advantage of them. In addition to other things that are key in terms of the caps remaining low, like we just mentioned and Ryan mentioned, they've got Deneau, Gallagher, uh, Tatar, Petrie to sign as unrestricted free agents. They've got Armia and Lakenin who will come out of two-year 
bridge deals. They've, they've, you know, over the next couple of years, they have to make deals for Suzuki and Kakaniemi and Paling and Max Domi's up this summer. So, you know, it's, it is a enviable position to have that type of space, especially with the uncertainty we're facing in these market forces. So there's a lot of pressure, obviously, on the Canadians to get back into the playoffs where they haven't been since 2017. But they really are a study in contrast in that the story of the past couple of years, they have really sort of built this prospect base on the fly. It seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be accepted logic that if the Canadians don't make the playoffs in 2021, that that's it for Mark Bergevin because he will have been there almost a decade at that point, but by the same token, if you continue to see growth from these prospects, is there not a case to be made that he's doing a good job and should be allowed to see it through? Could you see a world where if these guys, the young guys, show more promise, but they miss the playoffs by two points, Mark Bergevin gets to see this through? Conceivably, yes. I mean, it's so hard to look that far ahead. I'm really curious in terms of a, what's going to happen with the rest of this season? If you're asked my personal opinion about it, I, I think this season is dead. Um, I just, if, if it is so critical to preserve the entirety of the 2020-21 season, I just have a hard time believing there's a roadmap for us to complete the, the this current season. But that said, you know, like we have to wait and see what happens with that. And then ultimately this off season, no matter how short it is in terms of who Montreal drafts and who they're able to add to their team in the interim is a huge part of this retool for the Canadians in which they're, you know, they began in the, in the summer of 2018. And now, you know, they're right at the key kind of turning point. So I think they've built up a tremendous prospect pool and the most important things that can happen moving forward are a, those prospects develop into the players they're expected to be. You know, everyone considers the Canadians to have a top five prospect pool in hockey, whether it's just by the depth of it or by some of the elite talent that's within it. Um, but those players need to develop. They need to become the players that people think they're going to be. And then the second thing is, is they need to make the playoffs. And as a healthy team this year, they looked like a team that was capable of doing that. And as a healthy team last year, you know, in any other year, in 17 of the last 20 years, they would have made it with 96 points, but they just didn't. I mean, that was just a, a lousy situation for them. They probably deserved to make it, and they just didn't. But they need to take that step forward, and Mark Bergman needs to add the necessary talent depth to this lineup to enable them to overcome injuries to guys like Jonathan Duran and Paul Byron, because as soon as those two guys went down, you know, yeah, they had depth in, in the ranks to bring players up, but they didn't have the depth talent-wise in their team to replace those two specific guys. And Ben Chirot was was nailed it in the, the interview that I did with him where he just said, you know, our team is built on a speed element. And if you take Paul Byron and Jonathan Drouin out of that for three months, and this is not an excuse, you're, you're seriously affecting the identity of the team with those losses. And he's right about that. Like, so can Bergevin make the kind of changes in the off season, however short it's going to be and with the draft and with development of some of these players that they can overcome the loss of like one or two of those players. I mean, this year they got hit with a ton of injuries yeah. and all really at the wrong times, but 
it's it's a big project here. And, and to answer your question, I don't know what the future holds for Mark Bergevin. My belief would be that if he, they don't make the playoffs in 2021 and this thing isn't coming together and it's a clear step forward, that he would lose his job. But, uh, you know, like you said, if in the scenario that you presented, which is that they kind of survive and take steps forward, even if it's they're two points out of the playoffs next year, I, it's hard to see that happening. So I, I don't know. Tough question to answer. All right, well, here's a tastier one for you. Every time Rory and I jump on the pod each Wednesday, uh, our producer Michael has to dial one of us in and then the next one. Whenever the second guy joins, you're inevitably uh, jumping in on a conversation where Michael is describing what absolutely delicious things he's been making (laughs) the past week. Then I'm on your Twitter feed, Angles, and I'm seeing heirloom tomatoes with fried halloumi, organic burgers with sautéed onions, uh, chicken legs with tomato and cucumber salad my goodness here what's been your best quarantine creation meal wise well my wife and i we've we always knew we were a good team but we've kind of learned over uh over the last few weeks and in close quarters just how good of a team we are and she (laughs) well that's good it can go both ways buddy so that's good (laughs) yeah yeah i know for sure it's actually that part has been like that's been crazy for me. Just like, I always knew my wife was like really good at what she does in her work, but like sitting across from her on a daily basis and watching her do what she does, I've, I've been blown away. Like it's, it's been enlightening. And then she's a vegan and a celiac, which is a hell of a combination for a carnivore like me uh, who (laughs) loves all kinds of like gluten. But you know, she takes care she's, she's got a great methodology for roasting vegetables um, and I take care of my own proteins and she kind of makes her own dinner and I make my own dinner and I, I'm a huge foodie. Like anybody who knows me knows like I'm, I, when we're allowed to be, I'm out at restaurants multiple times a week and I'm all, I'm, I'm a, the ultimate critic when it comes to food. And I have really, really close relationships with some of the best restaurateurs in Montreal. And so I've always had a passion for cooking and, and for eating out and all that stuff. So also, my buddy got me into the organic movement a couple of years ago, and we have a couple of amazing producers in the Montreal area, so it allows me to shop local, and we get food delivered every week from a service called Lufa Farms in Montreal, which is all all organic produce, basically, and there's a couple of local butchers that only do organic, uh, this, this company Lawrence, which has three different restaurants in Montreal and a butchery. So it's, they're, they're incredible. I did a huge meat order that is still in my freezer from six weeks ago, basically. So I, the best thing I've made, I would say is I, I get these incredible organic filet mignons and it's, uh, I have a seven to eight minute process to sear and cook them. And then I rest Mm. them and cut them and I make sure that I get a really good sear on them and, and, uh, serve that with a little carrot kind of onion roasted, uh, medley of vegetables. And I, I think the one thing I'm missing on that plate is like a starchy kind of puree, but I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to watch the carb intake uh, while we're in quarantine. I've been working out. I've been working out for the last month and I like, I hate working out. I hate everything about it. And I hate <laughs> But I've been doing it, so Good. I'm. Uh, I might come out of this whole thing in 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 much better shape than uh, than when I went in. 
I made myself some craft dinner for lunch yesterday. <laughs> I was gonna say I heard Rory drooling through the microphone. Uh, I've been eating. I've been making like brownies and cookies too, and oh. these once a week and stuff. I I need the sweet quotient in there, but uh, like on the other side of things, like I I haven't had a drink in eight weeks. Well I, done. I don't know. I don't know what happened to me in this quarantine thing. It's like bizarro world. I'm living in an alternate <laughs> universe, but. It's like I'm doing all these things that generally I distract myself from doing in terms of taking care of myself, and I love being out and just letting it loose. But I don't know; it's it's been a journey so far. I hope it ends soon, but yes, until then, I'll just take advantage and do the best best I can. All right, well, stay safe, pal, and thanks so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. You guys are the best. That was Eric Engels. He covers the Montreal Canadiens for Sportsnet.ca. Check out all the great stuff Eric's been doing uh, during the pandemic, talking to all kinds of Canadians players about what they've been doing and where they see their future in some cases with the Montreal Canadiens. Thanks so much to Eric for joining us. Thanks to Rory, as always, for being an awesome co-host and to Michael Mayers for producing this podcast. Everyone stay safe out there and check back next week for more glass rattling hockey action on Tape to Tape.